Ephemeral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. The art of body decoration is as old as it is eye-catching, and few of those decorative practices are as ancient and popular as tattooing. Today, tattoos are everywhere. You can go into a shop, ask for almost anything, a symbol, quote, photorealistic image, and an artist will almost certainly be able to affix that image to your body. It's a poignant and permanent way to express oneself. To some extent, that fact has been true since the beginning of humankind. From then to now, tattoos have always told a story, sometimes the story of one person, other times the story of an entire people. Today, ephemeral producer Trevor Young takes us through the rich history of tattoos, starting by getting a tattoo himself. All right. All right. Here we go. I'm sitting at Southern Star Tattoo in Atlanta. My friend and trusted tattoo confidant, Josh May, picks up shifts here. How's that? Not bad? Not at all. He's been tattooing for decades, and his work is incredible. He's now finished 13 tattoos on me over the course of three years. Today, I'm getting another one on my right arm, a simple black symbol connected to a band I like. Personally, I've always found the experience of getting a tattoo to be exhilarating in the moment and intrinsically fulfilling in the long-term, more spiritual sense. In short, my tattoos have become a primary source of my outward identity, a way for me to tell my story. People come into the shop and they say, I need this tattoo. It's not that I want this tattoo or I'm going to get this tattoo. I need this tattoo. So there's something happening there. My name is Chuck Eldridge. I'm the co-owner and operator of the Tattoo Archive located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. The Tattoo Archive is all about discovering connections across different times and cultures as it relates to tattoo. Chuck has devoted his life to this research, and what he's found is that tattoo is a time-honored and universally beloved tradition. Tattooing, it was practiced around the world. I don't think there's a tribe or a group of people anywhere in the world that doesn't engage in some form of body decoration. Now, sometimes it's still body painting in many of those, especially some African tribes, and of course they get into scarification as well. But it, it seems like it's something in our nature. I don't know, it's almost like it's in the DNA of our body to mark our body, to have that group identity. For Chuck, it's always been about community. And in his case, that tattoo community came around very early on in life. I was uh, born in uh, a little cotton mill town called Elkin, North Carolina, and my father, my brother, my uncles all had service-related tattoos. So I grew up seeing them my whole childhood and um, really liked them. I loved the look of them. Um, I can remember getting my uncles to tell me the stories about how they got them and at the age of eight, I decided I wanted tattoos, and then it was um, a decade when I was in the Navy at 18 that I was able to get my first tattoo. I did boot camp in San Diego, California, and after 13 weeks, they gave us 
12 hours of liberty and $200 and turned us loose in San Diego. So I was able to get four tattoos that day in three different shops. The first one I got was a little sailor girl on my forearm. So that was kind of the start of my collection. After four years in the Navy, I came out in 1969 and probably had 35 tattoos maybe. So the collection had been growing. I was stationed in Texas and then I was aboard ship into Hong Kong and the Philippines and so I collected there. Chuck says the experience of getting a tattoo was very different back then. All the shops in San Diego then, majority of them were on Broadway, which is kind of like the main street in San Diego. And it's a sailor town, so the sidewalks are just full of sailors in uniform. They were literally lined up to get into the tattoo shop. And a lot of the shops were in kind of large bowling alley-shaped buildings, you know, deep and skinny. It was noisy and loud, and all the tattooers were old men. They were all from the Second World War and the Korean War. There were no young people tattooing, and there were no women tattooing. Stylistically, tattooing itself was also very different back then. There weren't all the specialties that we have now. There wasn't photorealism. There wasn't black and gray. There wasn't abstract. There wasn't watercolor. So a tattoo was a tattoo was a tattoo. There was a kind of a, a set group of patterns that have been reproduced for you know hundreds of years. So there was kind of a uniformity to it. There was something familiar and comforting to those designs. There's a reason most of the tattoo clientele were originally sailors. They came to the Navy more so than the Army and the Air Force and such as that, just because the Navy was going to these exotic places. They were going into the South Pacific where tattooing was, was popular and was normal. Whenever you travel, for me certainly, I always want to bring back some souvenir of that travel. And so sailors aboard ship, you don't have a lot of room. <laughs> so you can't bring back anything of any kind of physical size. So those tattoos worked as souvenirs. They could bring those back and they would have them and they could tell the story about getting those. And so it was a, it was a souvenir that you could carry with you. Chuck's path to professional tattooing after leaving the Navy was unique. I actually came to tattooing later than most people. Most people, if they had had all that interest when they were young, they would have ended up hand-poking their friends. That would have been the beginning of their tattoo career. But I took a different path. I ended up deciding out of the Navy, I had the GI Bill. For four years, they gave me free education. So I decided to use that, and I decided I wanted to build custom bicycles. So I went to a welding school in North Carolina and learned to weld. Um, I worked in bicycle shops to get my mechanic skills up. And then I traveled to California to try to get a job with a frame builder there named Albert Eisentrout. So I was pursuing that. I thought, okay, I'm going to be a bicycle frame builder. That's my lot in life. And I was still getting tattooed through this whole period, collecting here and there as I traveled. And on my way from North Carolina to California, I had gone through Chicago, and I'd gotten tattooed there by a fellow named Cliff Raven, 
who was a, a really up-and-coming tattooer. And when I was getting tattooed by him, I, I mentioned that I was on my way to California. And he says, well, you know, when you get out to San Francisco, look up this guy named Ed Hardy if you want to get a tattoo. So I just kind of filed that away in my brain. So once I got settled, I actually started looking for Ed. So I got over to his shop in San Francisco. And as soon as I went in the shop, you just go, oh, man, this is, this is something different. He had big Japanese-style body pieces and full-sleeve drawings and stuff. So I realized that this was the place to get all those random tattoos tied together into a set of sleeves. So I did an apprenticeship there. Unfortunately, there was a fire. The shop was destroyed after actually even less than a year. I was living in Berkeley. I just decided to open my own shop. I had my own ideas of what I wanted a shop to look like. In 79, I opened that shop in Berkeley. And I kept anguishing over, well, what am I going to call this place? Is it going to be Chuck's Tattoo Shop? Or, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know. And one day, I mean, I bicycled by this, this store, the Pacific Film Archive, which is a, an amazing film archive there in Berkeley. And somehow that day that I rode by, that word archive just leaped off the side of the building into my face. So I said at that moment, okay, it's going to be the Tattoo Archive. That's it. That's the one. The Tattoo Archive, the shop, eventually became a literal tattoo archive. You know, with tattooing, it doesn't take a lot of space to do tattooing. You know, you can tattoo in a 10 by 10 room, you know, and have a nice space. So I denoted most of the building, the space, uh, for historical stuff. I worked away there and wrote newsletters and wrote for other newsletters and um, would do slideshows, history slideshows at conventions and stuff like this, trying to keep those old-time tattooers' names alive. The reason we have such a clear view of what's going on is because we're standing on their shoulders. Eventually, Chuck started to feel more inspired by his work with the archive than by his work in the shop. Tattooing was horrifying. <laughs> this, there's no other way to describe it for me. I never felt that I had it, the thing. You know what I mean? You, you see some artist and they can draw anything in an instant and you look at it and you go, it's perfect. I never had that. So I, I labored over all of that. And it was stressful preparing all that artwork in advance. It was easier to get it to where the customer was happy with it than it was to where I was happy with it. And my first tattoo was a little tiny ant. <laughs> I'll never forget. On this guy's arm, I sweated. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was horrible. So <laughs> that improved a little bit, you know, in 30 or 40 years, but they were still always really stressful. After the archive grew, Chuck devoted himself almost exclusively to his work as a historian. If you visit the Tattoo Archive website, you'll quickly see just how extensive his research is. I asked Chuck to take us back to the beginning, to the very origins of what we now know as tattoo. Tattooing started as body paint, and it goes back to the cavemen. They would take dirt, red dirt, mix it with water, paint their bodies. They would take clay, mix that, and paint their bodies. 
And this would be done in a ritual situation. Women would have their first child when they could be married, when men would go and have hunts and make their first kill, and all these kind of things. There would be celebrations around this, and the bodies would be painted, and there would be specific images and, and shapes that would be painted on the body to convey this specific ritual that they were celebrating. Once the caveman had fire, then they actually had a pigment that they could push into the skin where they actually could tattoo, and that's soot. It's burnt down to a fine granulars form, and you mix that with water, and you get a porcupine quill or a bird bone that had been shaped in the shape of a needle, and you could literally push that soot under the skin and then create a tattoo. As a specific example, there was one ancient group of nomadic people who embraced tattoo before anyone else. If you really want to go back, you can go back to the Scythians. They were a very advanced tribe. They were doing metal work. They would do really large animal tattoos. They would be mainly just outlines because they didn't have color pigment and, you know, they had crude tools for doing the tattoos. So they were mainly outlines, but they covered a lot of their body. And then there are the Maori tribes in New Zealand. Many of today's popular tribal-looking tattoos are directly inspired by the Maori people's work. Although the Maoris really only tattooed their face and their buttocks, that was pretty much where it was limited. Before Captain Cook and his crew got there in the 1700s into New Zealand, they actually had no written language. So their face tattoos would tell the story of that person's life, their occupation, their tribe, their family connections, and all this kind of stuff would be told in their tattoos. If you go back and you start looking at ancient photographs of the Maoris, those tattoos were so ritualistic and so family-oriented that when the chiefs would die, their heads would be removed, and they would be smoked to where they would preserve them. The heads would go on display in the mantle inside their homes so that the children coming up could read the story of their ancestors. They had an amazing culture that way. If you travel in New Zealand, it's, it's a tattoo wonderland. Every place you go, every gift shop, bookshop, museum, tattoo culture is everywhere. The imagery, uh, it's amazing. Another region with a storied and complicated history of tattooing is Japan. Japanese tattooing is a lot like American tattooing in the fact that there's a 150 or 200 images or something that's kind of been codified in their artwork, especially in their tattooing. And these tattooers do these images over and over and over. They render them in their fashion and stuff. And a lot of those images come from a specific woodblock series, Warrior Prints that was done, I guess, probably in the 1700s, maybe, maybe even a little earlier. But there was a series of artists that specialized in doing tattoo-related woodblocks. And woodblocks, they were like ephemera. They were printed on woodblocks and on paper. They weren't considered high art. They were like pop art, if you will, kind of pop culture. So those were fragile, and I mean, a lot of them have survived and, and sell for big money now, but they were a very kind of ephemeral kind of art form. 
but they influenced the tattooers, and I suspect some of the tattooers were probably woodblock artists as well. The Japanese, of course, completely look at tattoos in a different set of eyes, if you will. For an American, a small tattoo is an ant on your arm. For a Japanese tattoo fan, a half sleeve is a start. They took the palette and just enlarged it to an extreme degree from wrist to neck to ankles with the Japanese. They've definitely advanced it, and I think the Japanese tattooers are still on the forefront of spectacular bodywork. Politically and socially, however, Japan was very slow to embrace tattoos. Tattooing in Japan was looked at as an outsider art. Today, it's connected with the Yakuza, which is the Japanese mafia. And I think that has hindered tattooing advancing in Japan. At one time, you could literally be in Japan and walk by a tattoo shop for years and never even know it was there. There was no signage. You had to have introductions to even get through the door of the tattoo shop. They labored in obscurity in a way. That has changed now. There are street shops in Japan, very often American-looking street shops with flashy neon and strobe lights. The Japanese had kind of a mixed feeling about tattoos. They had advanced it to a high degree and was respected worldwide, but the straight Japanese, uh, they saw it as bad. They saw it as gangster. You can only imagine where it would have gone if it had been more accepted. If that had been something that would have been less underground and less negative, how far would they have gone? Most historians will tell you the tattoo made its way to North America from Europe. Although, as Chuck points out, that's actually false. All the native tribes in North America long before the white men ever set foot on North America, all had some form of body decoration. They had progressed to where that was, that was normal. They were already doing puncture tattooing by the time the white man got here. But for professional tattooing, it was actually, it came from England and Germany. The early shops were in the 1800s, and they were initially in New York because that's where the immigrants came in. They just got off the boat and went to the Bowery and found a storefront and set up shop. And for probably a hundred years, that continued in that fashion. Tattooing was mainly isolated to the coast, where the ports were, where the Navy was. And then as America built more military bases in the middle of the country, tattooers began to congregate around them. Generally, if there was tattooing in the middle of the country, the middle of North America, it was around a military base because that was your bread and butter, was tattooing the military. You would get a few civilian clients, but not enough to pay the rent. You stayed alive from payday to payday, and sometimes you would stay open three days straight. If you had the staff to keep the shop going, 
Now it's to the point where if you're a young aspiring tattooer, if you've got skills, you don't even need to leave your little hometown. <laughs> the world will beat a path to your door. Still, in those early days, tattoo thrived primarily on the coasts. It was nautical. It was around port towns. Those sailors, you know, had traveled into the South Pacific. Captain Cook's crew came back from uh, the South Pacific in New Zealand with tattoos, so they brought them back. Once those islands in the South Pacific were charted with a latitude and longitude where people could actually find them again, you have to realize that these islands were like little specks in the middle of this massive body of water. So you could sail past it for hundreds of years and never even know that the island was there. But once Cook got that latitude and longitude in place, the next group of people to those islands were missionaries to begin with, and then explorers. Those explorers would find tattooed people and bring them back to England and back to America to show them for money to create the early sideshows. That had a big impact, especially in North America and in England, because people would go to these circuses and sideshows and they would see these tattoo attractions that had come from the South Pacific. Then they would go, ooh, that's cool. I think, I, what can I find one of those tattoo things? <laughs> so I think that was kind of the beginning of that. It was around this time that the first tattoo machines came around and they revolutionized the process. The electric machine was invented by a fellow named Samuel O'Reilly, mid to late 1800s, and he was inspired by Thomas Edison, an invention that Edison had called the stencil pen, which was an office tool for duplicating letters. And literally, it was a pen-type machine that was, had an electric motor and a vibrating needle, and you would take your original copy of your letter that you needed to duplicate and put it on a little foam pad, and then you would write over that. The needle would puncture holes into the paper. Then you would take that and put it on a clean sheet and then take an inked roller, roll over that. The ink would absorb through the holes, and it would give you a facsimile of the document. Of course, this is pre-typewriter, so this is like early office technology. It was eclipsed within a year or so because the typewriter came. O'Reilly was an Irish immigrant that came to America in the 1800s. He saw the Edison stencil pen and goes, I can tattoo with that. The machine evolved along, and if you were a tattooer in the 20s, 30s, 40s, you almost had to be a mechanic because you had to maintain that equipment. Sometimes the tattooers had serious mechanical skills, and so they would just start building their own machines. They'd have them cast, and they would wrap the coils, and the machine was a kind of a, a constant evolution, although you look at a tattoo machine, a coil machine, and they all kind of look the same, but there's subtleties inside that design. My analogy is the caveman invented the wheel, and it's still round. So the twin coil machine still looks the same, but there's, it's gotten more sophisticated, if you will. And many of these tattooers that had those mechanical skills actually became tattoo suppliers. They would go into a business, and sometimes the supply business would begin to overshadow their tattoo business. So this became a whole industry in itself. 
As Chuck mentioned earlier, American tattoo design became codified into a handful of simple, repeatable images. I asked him to explain what that traditional tattoo design looks like. It's a design with a solid black outline. There's enough black shading in it to make it hold up 30 years from now when all the color dims. And then it's colored with probably three or four basic colors, black, red, green, maybe a little brown or yellow. To my eye, that is a kind of a traditional tattoo design. Obviously, the imagery can be wild and crazy. It doesn't have to be an anchor or a sailor girl, but it's the way it, it's rendered. It kind of makes it a traditional tattoo design. Then, that design evolved with the emergence of one of the most popular artists in styles, Sailor Jerry. Sailor Jerry was a uh, Honolulu tattooer that actually got, got his start in Chicago, moved to Honolulu and tattooed there. Kind of off and on, he, he kind of took a couple of breaks and came back in the 60s as a, almost kind of a reinvented man and created this amazing volume of work. Because he sat there in Honolulu, between North America, which had in the 40s, 50s, 60s, had a, a wealth of amazing tattooers working in North America, and Japan, he took those two influences and blended them in a way that hadn't been done before. He was a good watercolorist. So he was able to take those images that we had seen, those codified images, and reinvent them. And it was extremely attractive. It was kind of the classic folk art style of tattooing. There was another style that developed around the same time as Sailor Jerry, one that was less commercially popular, but equally provocative and important. And that was prison tattooing. You have a group of men or women locked up. Maybe they don't look at it as a souvenir of their time in prison, but it certainly is a mark of their time in prison that um, they want to have. Sometimes you're actually almost required to have it. You're going to have to choose sides in there. And each side's going to have their markings and their logos and their wording and their lettering and that associates you with that side. Not that far removed how the Maoris were. All the parallels are sometimes mind-boggling, actually, how it works. Obviously, they didn't have access in prisons to needles. I mean, maybe they did sewing needles, but, you know, those, those were probably controlled. Once the, the guards found out that they were tattooing with the sewing needles, then they were issued, you know. They didn't have pigment. They did have, once again, harking back to the cavemen, burning pages of a book together soot. They had all the makings, and, you know, sadly, a lot of tattooers were screwing up and ending up in jail. So they had people that knew what they were doing. It's impossible to say, oh, well, this guy in this prison got the first prison tattoo on this date. I mean, that's, it's not possible to date that. But it certainly evolved into a very high art form, much like, once again, the, the Japanese. Here it is suppressed as seriously as it could possibly be oppressed, but... Um, the desire to have it is overwhelming the oppression. 
But I can remember if you saw somebody on the street in the 70s with all this black and gray tattooing, nine times out of 10, they had gotten that in prison. Today, obviously, (laughs) that's certainly not the case anymore. Now it's become a genre. It's got its own world. It's got its own series of tattooers. It's got its own series of pigments. It's like a, almost a separate branch of tattooing. Because of its association with prison and many other factors, the perception around tattoos in America for most of the 20th century was less than warm. The old analogy was sailors, prisoners, and loose women. That's who got tattooed. They were just looked at as, as an outcast and suspicious, not good, not favorable. Tattoo shops were isolated into adult entertainment sections of town where they had to be next to the titty bar, you know, and it was negative. You were a troublemaker. Police kept records of uh, certain designs that were gang-related so that if they arrested somebody and they had this image on them, then they could make the connection of, you know, it's like, it's just all this just piled up and piled up and piled up. It was not good, you know. I think the connection there in North America is religion. The Bible does not have the word tattoo in it, but it does talk about marking the body. I believe that that has stymied the public acceptance of tattooing forever and ever. Even today, it still does it. But as we all know, you can go into Starbucks now and your barista can have a tattooed neck. It's like no matter how hard you push it down, that's still going to rise up. That negativity started to diminish in the 1970s and 80s, once pop culture finally embraced tattoos. Now, Summer Means Concerts and the major bands are on the road. Alice Cooper doing three nights at Chicago's Uptown Theater, August 5th, 6th, and 7th. Music industry sources are also talking about the Rolling Stones tour. Yes, it is happening, although Atlantic or the Stones have not confirmed it. Tremendous impact on the popularity, the current popularity of tattooing was MTV. Came along in 82. Man, I can remember watching MTV and going, geez, man, look at all these tattooed people. Look at these people coming into our living room. They weren't gangsters or robbers or prisoners or murderers. TV is ritualistic in this country. You know, if it's on TV, it's real. Especially then it was. Maybe less so now, but that was the real world then. Led Zeppelin video would be shown every 48 minutes, (laughs) whether it needed to be or not. So you just start putting that into people's face. It's just going to begin to, to wear down those prejudices. And then along with that came tattoo conventions. I mean, they started in 76. 200 people would show up and everybody was amazing that there weren't more fist fights between the tattooers. You know, it's like it was still very underground. Getting a hotel to even allow us to have a tattoo convention was like, oh my God, the liability insurance that you had to pay to even get a convention into those hotels. And then the tattoo magazines came. It was kind of like, a, almost like a perfect storm. It had been building through the 60s and the 70s. And so that just accumulated in the 80s, and boom, here we are. We fear things we don't understand. And once we understand something, it takes some of that fear away. So I think that that's a classic example of 
what happened with the tattoo world. It became less fearful to people. And MTV, the conventions and the magazines and all that helped relieve that angst, if you will. Since the 80s, tattooing has blown up. Most major cities now have dozens of tattoo shops, and even small towns are sure to have at least a few. And along with that increased popularity came new styles, new ideas, and a wider palette of possibilities. Tattooing is certainly diversified. I mean, back when I started getting tattooed, a tattoo design was a tattoo design. <laughs> it didn't have all that kind of specialty name connected with it. Nowadays, there's a plethora of unique tattoo styles to pick from. This watercolor, this super realism, this black and gray, biomechanical. There's more than I could even name off the top of my head. I find that I, I like them. I never were able to execute any of those. I was a very traditional tattooer. So they were outside of my skill set, and I appreciate the skill that these tattooers do have. But it seems like every day there's a new term for another style of tattooing. And I think in the long run, it opens the art form to more people because traditional tattoos, which I love and are close to my heart, are not for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just that I face that fact. That's not a problem. What it ends up doing, too, is drawing interesting people, really talented people, into the tattoo world that maybe would have never thought about that. You know what I mean? That, that was like too weird, you know, tattooing somebody's skin, but they realized that their style and their technique actually can apply. I guess in the long run, that's good. As with any sort of art, media, or fashion trend, there are pros and cons to the increased popularity. The good thing is that it draws more people in. People got to have more choices of what they do, where they're able to express that inner feeling that they're wanting to put onto their skin. The bad thing is that people are drawn into it for all the wrong reasons. Just to make money, be cool, be the hip cat, you know? Chuck says that back in the day, the intentions of an aspiring tattoo artist were more pure. If you go back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, and you were a tattoo artist, you had to have a day job. There wasn't enough money in tattooing to support you and your family. Many of these tattooers were what I call blue-collar tattooers. They could tattoo for 40 or 50 years and have a day job that would bring them a salary every week, and um, they could have paid their mortgage, and they tattooed evenings and weekends. Those blue-collar guys, I loved those, those tattooers, because I felt that they were there doing it because they did love it, not because they could make a living in it. There's a real difference in mentality there that uh, I kind of like. Chuck also wonders if tattooing has gotten too popular. I wish we could go back to where tattoos were kind of taboo. I actually liked it a little better when tattoos were a little more outsider art. Anytime something becomes popular, it has a tendency to get overexposed or it just becomes popular and it kind of loses some of its uh, magic, if you will. I know a lot of people that were big proponents of promoting really good tattooing 
in the 70s and 80s sometimes now look back and go, God, you know, maybe we created a monster here. There are mixed feelings inside the tattoo business about that. And usually that comes from somebody that has enough experience to know what it was like before. I asked my tattoo guy, Josh, what he thought about the whole traditional versus new debate, and also whether his style has changed or evolved over the years. I've always kind of liked the, the roots of things, like more traditional things. So mm-hmm. probably it hasn't changed a lot other than getting way more into, you know, Japanese tattooing and larger scale. But definitely like the, the mindset of like kind of more simple, flat images, like things that look like, look like they were meant to be tattooed. Like that's always kind of... I've always sort of had that mindset, but yeah. definitely have evolved more into doing large scale, thinking about where it sits on the whole body instead of, uh, you know, the American emblematic patch, 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 you know. Today, it's easier than ever to become a tattoo artist. I asked Chuck what the usual path for an aspiring tattooer looks like. If you really want to be a, what I think of as a professional tattooer, you need some training, some background. If nothing else, just to teach you the level of respect that you should be exhibiting for your art and for the tattoo art in itself and for your customers. Now, how long that training should be, that depends on the person. You know, if you can be a sponge, you could learn all of that in a month. Traditionally, tattoo apprenticeships were thought of as two years. And to open your own shop straight out of an apprenticeship is sometimes foolhardy, but it certainly happens. You gotta pay the utility bills, you gotta find the space, you gotta get the license if the city has, you know what I mean? So there's these formalities that you kinda have to go through. Then you've got to build the shop, you know. I mean, obviously, some people put hundreds of thousands of dollars in their shop, some people work out of a trunk set in the corner. (laughs) So it's like, it it depends on how you want to present yourself. There's no set formula for that. Back in the 70s, when the tattoo convention started, tattooers would not uh, have shops. They were on the road tattooing. That's how they would stay alive and and do that. You don't need a lot of uh, sophisticated equipment and stuff to do great tattooing. It's a very... uh, minimal equipment operation. While getting tattooed, I asked Josh about his basic setup. He confirmed the general simplicity of it and explained to me how the process typically works. Yes, you've basically got tube, needle, machine, power supply. You have a clip cord that provides power to the machine from the power supply, and then foot switch that turns it off and on. Mm. Um, so there's no like trigger on the thing? Oh, awesome. a, lot, a lot of guys have just a switch that are, it'll either turn it on or off. So it's either constantly going, but I just don't like the feel of it constantly going. I feel like yeah. it's running away from me. Yeah. Especially if you're like doing something like cleaning off the needle a little bit or something, you don't like that thing going and going and going. Right. I personally don't, but yeah. Usually, foot switch clicking it on when you're... 
And then to get the ink, you have to kind of like what, like dip it like a quill or something, right? It's exactly like a quill pen. Like there's nothing making the ink stay in there or, you know what I mean? There's no apparatus like sucking up ink or, or dispersing ink. It's just like you're dipping it in the, in the well, just like a quill pen. And then it's just, you're poking holes in the skin and gravity is letting the ink drip down into the holes, you know, it's that, it's that simple. There's nothing like pushing it in there or anything. It's just a needle moving up and down. Right. Chuck doesn't tattoo as much as he used to, but the tattoo archive is bigger than ever. Well, you know, I collect paper, posters, postcards, photographs, business cards, catalogs, flash sheets. If it's on paper, I like it. I think if I had my collection to start over again, it'd be exclusively business cards. I think that business cards give us the biggest indication of that person's sense of humor, their professionalism, their spelling ability sometimes, their artistic ability, more so than any other single item that's around the tattoo world. I think the business cards are fascinating and and they're easy to store. (laughs) First of all, they, they may have a locator next to the Greyhound bus station. They will give you an indication of how many designs. Oh, we have 100,000 tattoo designs to choose from. We work in 14 colors. We use English needles. The card just kind of spills out what the person was saying if he was describing his business to you. And it's all there on that three and a half by two inch little piece of paper. And then sometimes on the back, there's a cartoon that's clever. They're just full of information. Throughout the archive, you'll find a vast collection of tattoo styles spanning across different time periods and distant parts of the globe. I asked Chuck what he thinks is the common link between all these tattoo traditions. Tattoo pigment under the skin. That is the connector for all of it, regardless of what they call it, (laughs) what color it is, what color the skin is, how well it's done. That is the tying in point. And with that is the idea that the person wants to wear this. They want to have this image on them for the world to see. And that's the connector. It's elementary. It goes back to the whole DNA thing of why do these people come in and say, I need this tattoo. What is that? What is that drive? And that drive obviously is as varied as the people walking into the shop. I believe that's the link that is the physical idea of wearing a tattoo and facing what you might not understand as far as pain, healing, repercussions from your family, what's your mother going to think? Being willing to face that and go, okay, I want this mark. This mark's important. Those Maori tattoos, their whole life story was told on their face. If you could look at your tattoos and knew what the meanings of them were to you, those tattoos would tell the story of your life. We're all the same. We're still all the same. You know, no matter how sophisticated we dress ourselves or what clever haircut we've got or what cute accent we have, 
we're all we're all in this boat together. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Trevor Young and produced with Max and Alex Williams. Chuck Eldridge is the founder of the Tattoo Archive, which you can peruse on tattooarchive.com. And special thanks to Josh May, the tattoo artist we recorded working on Trevor's arm. You can find Josh and his work on Instagram at jmay underscore ATL. If you'd like to share, we'd love to see your tattoos and hear the stories behind them. Find us online at ephemeral.show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.